all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any type of health care issues or other health care topics that you would like answered. It's right. You can call about anything. It doesn't have to be what the last caller uh, called in about. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four. Or if you're not, unable to call this morning, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Jimmy, I mentioned earlier when we were connecting on the phone that I had a question, but I'm going to defer because we have our first caller on the line, and it's our friend Sue in Beaumont. All right. Good morning, Sue. Thank you for calling. Hey, I've been waiting a week to talk to you because I've got something <laughs> I want to ask you because you know about these things. Okay. They're on Facebook, <clears throat> there there was a picture of some infants, I mean infants, not, not toddlers, infants lying in these little metal cradles out in the snow, and the, the caption of the picture was children sleeping in the snow. And I said, whose idea was that? That's a stupid idea. You don't put kids out there in the freezing cold. They said, well, in, in northern latitudes, People put their kids out there to get them used to the conditions they'll have to live under the real cold weather. And I kept saying, no, it's ridiculous. It's stupid that that's child abuse, that's child endangerment. And I got jumped on from everybody who lives uh, north of, uh, of the United States. And said, no, that's why that's why people do. They still do that in Finland and all you know, Scandinavian countries. Put those babies outside to sleep. And, and somebody said, my mother used to bundle me up, put me in a crate, you know, in the, in the walker, the child, you know, crib thing, and put me outside because it's good for your lungs. I, I, so every time I say that, it's a stupid idea. <laughs> I'd get jumped on with both feet. Yeah, so, I haven't uh, I haven't seen that picture, Sue, uh, or, or heard about that. Now, they do... Um, you know, they do in Scandinavian countries. They have a box that uh, basically that's that's what you get from the hospital to take your child home. But I don't think that they. I I, I would very. You know, they can jump on me too. That's fine. I'm not on Facebook or Meta, whatever it's called now. But um, but uh, yeah, that that's dangerous. Uh, you're exactly right. So infants cannot regulate their body temperature. Um, if you think about it, you know, when you're in the hospital um, and you have a new baby, 
they put them under a warmer because there's a transition period. Now, before we had warmers, we bundled them up uh, to keep them warm. Even in warmer climates, sometimes they can have uh, some problems with that. And then over time, they regulate their body temperature a little bit more. But because of their body surface area differences, they can lose heat a lot quicker uh, and overheat, which is another reason why, you know, you don't want to leave your child, particularly younger children, in your car unattended, particularly in the summertime in the South. But as far as getting, you know, so-called used to cold weather climates, Mm -hmm. uh, there's not really, you, you can't really get used to it. It's more of how you feel. So uh, now there, the opposite is true. You can, your body does adapt uh, to hotter climates. Like it, you know, it usually takes about two, two to three weeks to do that. And there's some differences in how your kidneys work and in how your cardiovascular system regulates that. But really, all we have against the cold is to try to shunt a lot of the blood flow to different areas, to the more vital areas. But you do that at the expense of decreasing blood flow to your extremities. And if it's cold enough and long enough, you can do a lot of damage and you can even die. So I would not advocate that, even in Mississippi, in the in the cold. You know, we don't have, we're certainly not Scandinavia. But I would I would uh, not do that. Now, babies do have a special type of fat. It's uh, like brown fat is sort of the, the vernacular for it, uh, layman's term for it. But um, it's a special type of fat that helps them to preserve their body temperature a little bit more. But again, because of their body surface area being different, um, they can lose a lot more um, a lot more heat and, and need to be protected against it. Just a little bit of common sense. You know, you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, that's uh, what I said. I said, use common sense. It's, it's no common sense in putting those babies out and call it sleeping in the snow. Yeah, that would be that would not be good, and it wouldn't it wouldn't take long. You know, if it's if you're talking about temperatures below freezing, uh, you 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 can't really. I don't care what age you are, you're going to have some problems with uh, at least frostbite, if not more things than that. And, well, that, uh, yeah. that picture was supposedly taken in Russia in 1984, but I didn't realize. Supposedly, all these people are, are jumping on me because they say in their countries, you know, they. Uh, that's a common thing to expose children to the cold so they get used to it. It's good for your lungs, what they say. As if it's good for your lungs, if it's good, then why don't people who live in deserts put their kids out in the hot sun so they can get used to that? So, yeah. I mean, yeah. just as a, you know, if it's yeah, good you for wanna, one, I mean... You- now I'm. I, it's fine to appropriately have kids that are clothed that you take out in the cold. You know, oftentimes I I'll travel up north to you know close to the Canadian border sometimes, and you know you see families out and it's you know fifteen twenty degrees and they're you know got their kids out there. We tend to be a little bit more careful just because we don't have as much cold here in Mississippi. So in the South, you know, if it gets much below forty degrees. They're like, okay, we gotta, we gotta model up. We gotta, we gotta do things, you know. So, but um, that's fine. You just need to, you know, go outside with protection. And every area that's exposed can uh, can have damage. I had a friend of mine uh, who's a, who was a dentist. He was actually on Southern Remedy years ago, and at the time he lived in Fairbanks, Alaska. And you know, he would tell me about the frigid cold that you have there during the winter time and. Um, that he was a big runner, and uh, he would go out and run when the temperatures were below zero, 
mm-hmm. 20 below, and you could he said you could feel the changes in your eye as it started to freeze. And I was like, you know, common sense would tell you to get out of the cold if it's that cold. Well, you know, I, 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 the only this one last comment. I made a comment on Facebook as well. I don't see any photos of adults sleeping out in the snow on cots, which would be equivalent to those infants. You know, these were not these were infants out there. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad you think that's ridiculous and stupid too, because that's what I keep I'm putting in, on there. I'm and I, so camp. Facebook police are probably gonna knock me off because I keep saying that's ridiculous, that's stupid. Get, get those babies in the house, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm with you, Sue. Really? I, I think that's uh, – and the opposite, too. I think what you said is right. Like you wouldn't uh, – you know, when it gets hot here in the south, you want to make sure that you're uh, – you know, particularly younger kids, you want them to, to be protected. So you want them, want them out there just uh, cooking. We do see way too many kids who unfortunately die in the summertime uh, who are left in cars. And, you know, it can get up to 120, 140 plus degrees in cars that are closed, so you just don't want to leave them unattended like that. So good point. Either way, you just need to have some common sense and uh, keep them warm or keep them cool, depending on what's going on outside. Thanks. Thank you for calling, Sue, as always. The number to call if you have a question about any kind of health care issue that you might have is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So, Dr. Jimmy, I've got kind of a two-part question. Um, I got my flu shot, but recently was sick for a couple of days with kind of like flu-like symptoms, was uh, very body aches and quite tired and that sort of thing. So the first part of the question is, similar to the uh, COVID vaccine, does a flu shot, if it doesn't completely prevent the flu, does it make it to where the symptoms aren't as bad and don't last as long? And then the second part of my question is, uh, when you're sick with the cold or the flu and you take medication on a regular basis, in my case, lisinopril, do you ever need to worry or concern yourself about taking that medication, continuing to take it when you're not feeling well? Yeah, two great questions. Yeah, so flu vaccine... Uh, you know, year to year it differs because of the way that the flu sort of travels around the world and it travels in different animal vectors. Um, that's just, uh, you know, some uh, different animals that it affects. It's not just humans that it affects. It's uh, birds and pigs are a big reservoir. So depending on what that looks like regionally and at different times, they are able to predict fairly accurately now within the last 10 years what those strains are going to be, and then to develop the vaccine against those different components. So if you if you get the vaccine and you, you're exposed to the flu virus and you end up uh, contracting it, it is, uh, you, you do have a little bit of protection, even if you get it, that you're going to have a less of a course with it, particularly if you're elderly or young uh, or you have chronic medical conditions. So those are the highest risk people and, of course, the people who take care of them. So you want to try to protect them around them. Um, and it is a better immunity against the flu virus than actually getting the flu. I know there's a lot of talk about endemic or natural immunity, and uh, but with flu, definitely uh, the flu vaccine would would give you that. And you can, you, know, you mentioned a little bit of the side effects um, of uh, sort of muscle soreness or overall soreness. You can't get the flu from the flu vaccine. We don't have really live type. Uh, on the injectable ones anymore, um, so you can't develop it. But that's just your immune system recognizing that as the flu, 
and uh, making all those immune complexes. Uh, so you, that's that's sort of your body doing its job to work uh, to develop that immunity against it. Second part of that question about what if you're taking certain medications and you do get the flu or any other sickness for that matter, what happens? What do you need to do? Do you need to stop those medications? Do you need to continue them? Generally speaking, uh, for most infectious diseases, we continue those. Um, one broad class of exception might be diabetic medication. So sometimes you might need more of your diabetic medication or less, depending on what's going on. But I would lean heavily on your physician uh, or whoever's following you for your medical conditions to give you that information. As far as high blood pressure medications, though, almost all the time we continue those. The only only reason for discontinuing them is if somebody has an illness that causes their blood pressure to drop. Um, so we would want to back off of those. But that's usually in either the ER or the hospital setting. So in the outpatient setting, you know, that's not as, as big a deal. Uh, same thing for, you know, you want to ask those questions around elective procedures like surgeries or colonoscopies and those kinds of things. Uh, you know, ask them, hey, do I need to take my medication uh, before I come in? Because sometimes there can be some miscommunications about that. And the way some of these medications work, particularly if you have lots of problems like heart failure uh, or liver problems, uh, you need to take those medications every day. So um, when in doubt, call your physician's office beforehand and say, hey, I'm supposed to have this or I got sick. Do I need to keep taking this medication? But generally, the answer is going to be yes. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning answering your questions and calls about any kind of health care issue you might have. Maybe it's medication, maybe it's a new diagnosis, whatever it is. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven MPB Ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Believe we're going to go to Stephanie in the Delta somewhere. Are you there, Hello. Stephanie? Hey, yes, thank you for I'm, calling. I'm here. Yes, I have a relative, and she's having problems with her bile duct staying open. Can you talk uh, about that and maybe some of the remedies and what uh, should be done? Yeah, so the bile duct, if I heard you correctly, so that is a duct that goes, um, there's a common bile duct that sort of connects to the liver and the gallbladder. So bile is a breakdown product of several different things. So it's sort of some fatty salts. And the body really uses this to help break down fat. So you need a little bit of this coming into your uh, intestines. And it's stimulated by sort of higher fatty foods. 
that you eat. So um, now there can be lots of, when you say a bile duct problem, there can be lots of, of things that might cause that. Now it might be gallstones that might be obstructing it. Um, and those, you know, that's usually that, that necessitates a uh, gallbladder removal uh, through surgery, and um, that normally takes care of the problem. But there are there are lots of other things that can affect it. You can have scarring in the bile duct. You can have uh, things that are pressing on it from outside that might occlude uh, the drainage. You can have problems in the bile ducts uh, within the liver uh, higher up. So it really depends on what type of those problems and at that point you really need to see a GI specialist or if it's beyond the the gallstones that's usually a surgical problem um, that they can take care of but if it's if you're having something beyond that a GI specialist is really the one to to be seeing there are some medications that you can take that help with the flow of bile through there so that it can it can normally, you know, produce the bile and it can flow into your intestines through that little bile duct. Uh, and it's not duck, it's it's duct. Um, I know a lot of people will call it, hey, it's a duck. That doesn't make sense, but it's D-U-C-T. So it's like a, a conduit or a little tube, if you want to think of it that way. Um, but uh, and then the other thing is your diet can affect it too. So um, a lot of the again in the fatty foods, if you're eating a lot of those, changing to less fatty, fatty food diet, and a lot of people have problems with uh, with some cramping and some bile duct dysfunction um, after they've had their gallbladder out, and it's it really can be modified a lot by just changing your diet a little bit to decrease the amount of fats. And then some medications may affect it too. So, um, you know, oral contraceptives is a good, uh, that's a good it's an example of one medication that may affect the amount of bile that you're producing and the amount of gallstones that you're producing. So without knowing more about, you know, what type of problem it is, that's what I would say. But I would Again, the GI specialist, the gastroenterologist, those are the same people who do the colonoscopies and they do the upper endoscopies. They may be the, the people to, to talk to about it if it's beyond sort of the uh, gallstone type issues. Okay. Thank you a lot. Especially belches a lot. Just have a lot of belching. Yeah. Yeah. And that can go along with it too. Yeah. They can, it's, you know, sometimes those symptoms can be vague. Um, you know, some symptoms are very easy to get to a diagnosis, but um, GI symptoms, just because of the way the nerves are hooked up in the stomach, it it is hard sometimes to try to figure out what's going on. And you can use all kinds of different things in addition to an exam and a history, uh, some tests and, and so forth to try to get to the bottom of the issue. But yeah, belching can certainly be, that's one of the, the symptoms, not as specific as some others, um, you know, pain in the area of the bile ducts, and it's usually in the right upper quadrant, the right upper side of the abdomen below the rib cage is where most people have their, their symptoms. So, um, but certainly, yeah, certainly that sort of fits into it. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Stephanie, and uh, thanks for listening and, and certainly for calling in. Dr. Jimmy, we've got another caller on the line. This time we'll go to Bob from Fairhope, Alabama. All right. Good morning, Bob. Way down in Fairhope. How are you doing this morning? Well, we're well, thank you. And I hope you're doing well as well. Hey, I'm a 74-year-old, um, generally healthy, controlled hypertensive, and I've been taking uh, 
81 milligrams of aspirin for about 15 years prophylactically, and I see that now the recommendation is that that probably isn't a good idea anymore. Can you comment on that? Uh, yeah, so the, you're right. So there's some recent research in looking at aspirin and who it's best for. Now, and somebody like yourself who doesn't have a whole lot of problems may just have some hypertension um, there's not really an indication that it's going to be that beneficial in preventing a stroke or a heart attack, and it may even cause some risk of bleeding uh, long term. So you're exactly right. So the, usually that necessitates a, a conversation with your physician. If there are other risk factors that you may not be aware of, um, you know that that can play into it too. But by what you just told me um, and the new information, I would say, you know, if you if you wanted to stop it at this point, it's probably not going to, you know, give you that much protection against a stroke or a heart attack. Um, but, you know, if you were my patient and you said, you know what, I really want to take that risk of bleeding because I want to reduce my risk, it's not a whole lot of risk reduction. Honestly, the biggest risk reduction is your blood pressure being well-controlled. Um, but and your activity level and diet. But um, you know, if you really wanted to take it and you were my patient, I'd say, hey, go ahead and take it. But just be aware, you might have some bleeding problems, particularly in your GI tract. Uh, two things. One, um, I have noticed that I bruise easily, so it's mm-hmm. not going to be any skin off my nose if I uh, stop <laughs> taking it. Uh, right. And secondarily, can I stop it cold turkey? Does it have to be weaned off? What's the yeah? You can. Thought? You can. You can stop it cold turkey. You're right. It, so aspirin works by inhibiting platelets from uh, sticking together, basically. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it does take a while for that effect to go away. Like if you're having an elective surgery, they will oftentimes ask you to quit taking platelets um, for a week or two prior to the surgery because it takes that long form to sort of the effects to sort of wear off. Um, but, yeah, you could just stop it cold turkey and uh, – and that bruising should get better. Um, yeah, it, it does cause that. Even just, you know, people who are on chronic aspirin, particularly as you get older, you can just barely bump something and you'll have a huge bruise there. So looks like you're getting beat up. Yeah, exactly. So and I, I don't want to give my wife the credit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks an awful lot. I appreciate your advice. Sure. Th- take care, Bob. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Do want to mention our uh, website, mpbonline.org. You can go there and uh, access old archived programs, or you can also check out our um, uh, the uh, podcast um, for Southern Remedy, and uh, you can keep up with uh, – with what's going on. If you want to do it at your leisure and uh, catch that on the back end of of programs, certainly you can listen to us live on Wednesdays at 11. But uh, I understand some people can't do that, so that's another way to to listen to us on mpbonline.org. Yeah, we talked earlier about some medications, too, that can have other effects on things, and Kevin brought up uh, a great question to begin with about if you come down with something like the flu, should you stop other medications or continue them? One medication that, you know, medication interactions, because we have a lot of patients that are on so many different medications, you have to be careful with those and understand how they might uh, complicate things. You know, steroids are one that always comes up. Um, You know, there's a lot of use of steroids. Steroids are good. Prednisone is one that's very common. Uh, uh, Dexamethasone is another one. 
they are sometimes overprescribed, though, to decrease inflammation when they're not really indicated to do that. So you do have to be aware of some of the effects of them. Certainly long-term steroid use and even short-term, if you do it enough within a certain span of time, can have lots of negative consequences. And steroids can cause an increase in cataract formation. They can uh, lead to the development of diabetes. They can decrease your bone density. Um, they can uh, cause chronic thinning of the skin, just lots of, of different complications. So they are useful and sometimes needed, particularly in some autoimmune uh, diseases and uh, with acute inflammation, but they do have those side effects. And you do have to think about adjustments to other medications. Uh, for instance, uh, diabetic medications. Uh, if you are a diabetic and you're on steroids, even, even you know, some people who can may go and maybe have a case of poison ivy that's treated with oral steroids or uh, whatever it is uh, with oral steroids, Ask, make sure your physician knows or whoever's prescribing that, uh, those steroids knows that you're on other medications. Uh, so tell them about that, even if it's over the counter. And you can actually make some of the side effects worse, like gastrointestinal bleeding, um, if you're taking other things. So if you're taking a lot of ibuprofen over the counter, Advil, um, that might increase your risk of GI bleeding if you're going to take steroids for a, a length of time. So always a good idea to talk to your physician about that and your pharmacist. Love those discussions I have with pharmacists, both in the clinic and outside um, in pharmacies that can call back and say, hey, I noticed that they're taking this, and maybe the patient forgot to tell me about it, and that might be an interaction. So uh, always a good idea to, uh, to let everybody know what you're taking, even if it's over the counter. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering some great questions so far about all kinds of different things. The number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you're not able to call us this morning, you can always email us. We do try to get back with you about that and share some of those with, if they're appropriate, with the larger audience. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Got a couple of calls on the line, Dr. Jimmy. Let's uh, start first with uh, John in Port Gibson. Good morning, John. Thank you for calling this morning. Yeah, good morning. What's your question this morning? I want to know about kidney stone, how you can prevent uh, getting kidney stone. I had one removed, 
Uh-huh. And I want to know how you could prevent from getting them. Yeah, because they're nasty, aren't they, John? Um, yeah, mine. So I hear, now I have, thankfully I have never had one, but certainly have treated a lot of patients with them. And my female patients who have them tell me that uh, it is worse than giving birth to a child. Now, I'm not going to debate that because I'm a guy, and uh, but I and I've, uh, have all the respect for what uh, the pain that women go through with that. But it is a very painful thing to have. And if you've ever had a kidney stone, we unfortunately, this is sort of a kidney stone area just because of our climate. Uh, typically, you're more at risk if you are in hotter climates. So you can predict that we have an increase of these during our summer months. Now, a kidney stone is basically, you know, your kidneys filter out all kinds of different things. One of the more common things is calcium. But there are other substances that they filter out of the blood and excrete into the urine. So that goes down from the kidneys. There's a little tube that connects them down to the bladder and then from the bladder to the outside of the body when you urinate. Normally, those are dissolved in the urine. So all those little things, just like if you were dissolving uh, you know, a, a sugar or something like that, or salt in liquids in cooking or in uh, in drinks or or whatever. That same kind of thing normally happens. Now, what if you get too much of it though in the water, in the urine, uh, the liquid part of the urine, then it precipitates out. Just like if you pour more salt into, if you keep pouring salt into a cup of water, eventually that salt's going to come out of solution. Same thing with sugar. Um, it's only so much of it that can that can be in there. So that's also why it's important during summer months, if you're prone to kidney stones, if you already had one, to drink plenty of water, plenty of water. So you want to drink enough so that your urine pretty much looks clear. Um, that's that's important uh, to try to prevent that. And then sometimes there's other reasons, like your kidneys aren't as well suited to excrete some of those things. So there may be some things depending on the type of kidney stone. So, John, if you had yours taken out surgically uh, or or procedurally, they probably did an analysis of it. And the most common one is a calcium oxalate stone. So those are that's the one of the more common ones. So they may have given you some things to eat and not to eat, and that sometimes that can affect it. People who have gout can have kidney stones too. So some of the foods that you normally would avoid with gout uh, would help prevent those if you have gout stones. Um, also, there are some medications to take, you know, in some instances. Now, there's one that has been used for prostate enlargement. It's called Flomax that can help to to prevent if you've had multiple kidney stones. You might want to talk to your physician about that. So Flomax has been used. I've prescribed it in some of my patients to try to decrease the amount of kidney stones. And it really, it's just about moving things through the GI tract, a little, I mean, the uh, urinary tract a little bit faster. But that's some of the things, John, that you can do. And uh, if you have recurrent ones, you may need to see somebody like a urologist who can give you some advice about some specific specific things to do based on the type of kidney stone you had. Okay, thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, we got another caller on the line. Next up, it's Greg from Tupelo. All right. Good morning, Greg. Thank you for calling. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my wife broke her 
pelvis, uh, I guess this past July, it was a year ago this past July. So she's developed a, uh, a calcified hematoma, I think maybe on her hip and, uh-huh. uh, she's still in a, a, a good bit of pain, uh, especially pressure pain, like from, from sitting or whatnot. And I was just wondering, I had a question, is, is this something that could be removed? And if so, what type of specialist should, should she see? Yeah, so, uh, you know, blood has calcium in it, and when blood clots anywhere, outside the body, inside the body, if it sort of, you know, pulls around, if it's outside the blood vessels, it, it'll clot. And you can have calcium, just like we were talking about with kidney stones, you can have the same thing happen in the blood where calcium gets sort of left behind and it's calcified. It's real hard. It's like a stone, really. Sometimes you can feel that and uh, in, the, in the muscle or subcutaneous tissues. And it can cause a lot of pain. If it's big enough, you know, I suppose they could, a surgeon, a general surgeon could move, remove that. It is, over time, it will go away. So depending on how long this has been, if it's been longer than, you know, six to nine months, then you may want to go back to your surgeon and say, hey, can anything be done about this? They may, depending on where it is, they may consult like a plastic surgeon uh, might be a better person, you know, depending on where it is to to remove that or to, uh, but if it's inside the muscle or if it's inside some other tissues, that may be a lot harder uh, and you may just have to, she may just have to sort of see if it's, if it's going to resolve over time. But I've known, you know, I'm actually, uh, my wife got hit with, we were talking about this last night, actually got hit with a softball, uh, decades ago and had a little, uh, you know, in, in indentation where the calcium, uh, in the bruise that she received from that was there for a, for years, for a long time. So, uh, and eventually that went away, but, um, it can take a long time for that calcium to reabsorb back into the body. Right. It, it's probably been, uh, it's probably about the size, I guess you'd, you'd say over, over, of your hand. I mean, it's, it's a good size, uh, and you can visually see it. I mean, it's a, a visual lump on her, uh, on her right hip and she broke her pelvis pretty badly. It broke it in, in a couple of places and during COVID and it was, it was no, no doubt it was probably the, the largest ordeal that ordeal that we've been through, but, uh, sure. He still yeah. has a, a good bit of pain from it. It affects, of course, it affects her work and, and everything else. But, uh, uh, she's, she struggles with it, but she complains about it every day. So, uh, but I thank you for your information. Yeah, if it's that big, I think I might talk to a plastic surgeon just to take a look at it as a second opinion to see if they could do anything. Um, but yeah, the pelvis has a ton of blood vessels that that are in and around it, and when you break, you know, because the pelvis is a ring. If you break one side of it, you've broken it somewhere else because of that. I mean, just the way it's, that it's shaped. We're always, you know, t- we teach. I, I can remember in medical school being taught that. So it, uh, because of that, it there are a ton of blood vessels that usually get uh, disrupted with a fracture like that, and it can be pretty, pretty long recovery. So it's not, and because of where the pelvis is, it's hard to get comfortable on that. So, um, so yeah, but I, I, I might reach out to a plastic surgeon if it's that big and and causing a lot of problems. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for calling. Dr. Jimmy, we'll get one more call in before the next break, and it is from Rachel in Eupora. Good morning, Rachel. Thank you for calling. What's your question this morning? Hi, Doc. Um, So a friend of mine has been diagnosed with 
gastroparesis, mm-hmm. if I'm saying it correctly. You did. And mm-hmm. uh, Okay, so she said that uh, diet was, uh, she was told that diet was the only way to treat this. Uh, how familiar are you with this uh, condition and what can be done for yeah. it? Yeah, gastroparesis. So I'm fairly familiar with it. Um, So it is most common in diabetic patients. So if you have diabetes, that puts you at risk, whether it's type 1 or type 2. And it is thought to be a disruption in the nervous system that uh, coordinates food as it transits from the esophagus and through the stomach and then into the intestines. And what generally happens is it doesn't empty, the stomach doesn't empty when it should, and it's delayed, and it can, uh, as it uh, contracts, can cause a lot of, usually a lot of abdominal pain, and can even cause a lot of vomiting, too, or retching if you're not vomiting. So it is a miserable condition to have. Um, There are some medications that are called prokinetic medications, meaning that they increase the rate at which food moves through the stomach. So it can increase that that transit time a little bit. Um, There are other things sometimes if a patient has exhausted everything else, there's actually something called a gastric pacemaker. Uh, So it is an electronic device. It's not a pacemaker like the heart, but it's similar to that. And it is uh, it is placed, there are electrodes that are implanted uh, around the stomach to help it contract because basically it's muscular contractions to uh, decrease some of those symptoms. I've had a few patients that have had that done uh, and did get some relief. Now, diet does um, improve. So there are certain types of foods that delay gastric emptying. Uh, high fatty meals can do that. Sometimes other types of foods can do it. Um, that they allow food to just sort of sit there longer than it should, and uh, that uh, it doesn't coordinate that emptying of the stomach so much. So I would I would try the food changes first. If that doesn't help, make sure you're talking to somebody who has some experience with it. And you know I I don't I don't go further even just knowing what I do about it. I don't usually go for much further than one or two medications that might increase that transit time. And then I get them off to a um, to a GI specialist who knows more about it and can can uh, make some suggestions. And then if they have to, you know, if they if they qualify or if they've exhausted everything else and still having a lot of problems, regionally a lot of people are doing these these gastric pacemakers, um, but they're not, you know, Eupora, you're not going to find anybody there. You may have to, you know, you may have to travel to uh, to uh, even out of state to do that. Um, uh, that procedure, but uh, that would be my suggestions, particularly and if it, if they do have diabetes, um, getting better control of the diabetes is important, so making sure that it's um, that it's well controlled because the lower the more you have that blood sugar that's out of control and uh, the the longer you're going to have those symptoms. What about uh, liquids? Would they be more easily tolerated and moved more quickly? 
So it's not really a solid liquid type thing like the, with the consistency, but the type of food has a lot to do with it. Like I said, uh, fatty foods tend to stay in the stomach a lot longer um, and not make that transit through there. Uh, but usually, and, and this is just, just with gastroparesis, there are certainly many other GI conditions that depend on the consistency of food. So, you know, things like scarring in the lower in, uh, esophagus and those types of things, then, then that would be, you know, that would certainly have a bearing on whether it was liquid or solid. But usually for just for gastroparesis, most people will, will fi- figure it out if they have it long enough, and they'll be like, you know, I know this food's going to make me, you know, just sort of set off. So uh-huh. that can, a food diary can help um, sort of um, identify those types of foods. So if you just write down what you eat and then off to the side of it, if they have problems with, you know, with, after they eat that meal, and they'll know within 30 minutes if that, you know, if that food's going to set them off. And then uh-huh. by sort of process of elimination, you can cross off some of those and change what you're eating. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions, taking your calls about any kind of health care topic that you might have. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you weren't able to call in and you still got something burning uh, on your mind, you can call us at, or email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, got two calls to wrap up the show. We'll hear from Carrie and Pass Christian, but first, it's Carla in Philadelphia. Good morning, Carla. How are you this morning? I'm great. How are you, Doc? Good. I have a question. I'm 69 years old, and two years ago, I was diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic. I've had no other health issues, nothing wrong. In November, I had COVID, mm-hmm. and couldn't go to the doctor because, you know, they weren't taking visits, so we did stuff on the phone. Well, I went for my six-month checkup <clears throat> two weeks ago, and he told me that he found uh, atrial fib, and possibly it was due to COVID. So they did an echocardiogram, and the tech, I asked the tech, because I've worked in medicine for 40 years, I said, what do you think? She says, I'm not keeping you, so it's not that bad. I said, oh, okay. Well, I go to the heart doctor tomorrow, and I just... I've never heard of such. And I mean, I'm in good health. I don't tire. He said, you might tire easily. 
every now and then, if I go forever, I'm old, I get out of breath. But have you ever heard of such? Uh, of getting the of getting AFib and going to the cardiologist is that what you're talking about? Yeah, after having COVID, he said he yeah. had COVID. It, and it could be I haven't seen you know there's certainly we're finding out a lot more about some of the associated side long term side effects of having COVID. I can't I you know I couldn't say with a I don't think anybody could with a hundred percent certainty that it caused that to happen. Certainly. If you look at as people get older, there's an increase in atrial fibrillation anyway. Um, so it could have just popped up, you know, by itself. There's lots of other things that can cause it too. I'm sure they check some labs looking at your thyroid function and those kinds of things. Um, but it is possible, and you know, I have seen just coincidentally a lot of things pop up in very health healthy older individuals after they had COVID about anywhere from six weeks to three months afterwards. And we do know that there are some associated conditions, particularly autoimmune and inflammatory conditions that have seemed to be uh, that you're increased risk for if you've, if you've had COVID, even if your, your COVID experience wasn't that bad. Um, so I can't say that it wasn't a cause of it, um, but it's a possibility. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, sort of assessing whether or not you need to be uh, you know, they, it's either rate control or rhythm control, basically, and, and sort of what uh, the cardiologist definitely is the person to go to for that. Um, right. Can medication take care of it? Yeah, sometimes medication? it can. So okay. there's a medication called amiodarone that can is useful both for rhythm and rate control. So some, some patients, if, if you don't have a contraindication for taking it, that's actually a medical way that you can be on it for about three months or, or six months, and a lot of times you'll convert back into a regular rhythm and stay okay. there. So, um, okay. yeah, that's one of the things to ask the cardiologist. Um, uh, you know, there's there's some other ways, resynchronization uh, therapy to do that, but, yeah, there are some medications that can certainly do that. Well, I appreciate that. I told them at 69, I'm not going to start being a, a guinea pig. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, unfortunately for you, AFib is very common. Uh, there's a lot that we know about it and a lot of good ways to treat it. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you and have All a right. great Thank you, Carla. Let's go to Terry and Past Christian, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Carrie is here, Past Christian. Uh-huh. Um, hi there. Um I sort of perked up when you mentioned steroids because um, my mother is um, malnourished. She's been eating less and less and less, and um, we were a year in lockdown over England, and I think she lost 10 pounds there. It was just very cold, and they were very stringent about people just staying indoors. And um, but be, but back here, I think she lost another 10 pounds, and she hadn't it to lose, so she's about. Um, just barely 80 pounds now, probably more like 78 pounds. So she's sort of diagnosed with malnutrition, and I try to get her to eat. I've always tried, but she says her stomach capacity is so is so small. Well, she doesn't say that, but I believe it is. So she's full easily. And um, she's had uh, a kind of pneumonia, which I think might be aspiration pneumonia. Uh, mm-hmm. Had to swallow too many pills. She she um she, she had a little bit of COVID, but that's fine. She was vaccinated. Hey, Carrie, um, I hate to jump in, but we're pressed for time. Only got about a minute left, so give Dr. Oh, Jimmy yeah. a quick okay. uh, time to respond. Oh, did we lose you, Terry? 
Carrie, uh, Dr. Jimmy, we're running out of time. Yeah, I, so weight loss, uh, certainly you'd want to know, in a, particularly in an elderly person, there's so many different things that can cause that. Thyroid dysfunction can do it, lots of different things. So trying to figure that out is very important. Um, I'm not sure if, if her question was to, uh, you know, to give steroids. I probably would not just because, again, of all the side effects, particularly in the elderly. But uh, getting somebody, good physician detective, just to say, you know, what is going on? Let's look at this maybe get some more lab work on her just to try to figure that out. But that can be very, very difficult to do, particularly if you have a patient that's not able to tell you all the symptoms or you just have some some conflicting symptoms. So sorry we weren't able to get all of that info, but that's sort of where I would start. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.com. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app.